It's Monday, September 27th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Yes, yes, yes. David, you hear that music? <laughs> what does it do to you, Dave? Oh, it makes me it makes me get up and dance, Pete. It makes, it makes me want to look at the news and make fun of it. Yeah, that's exactly what we do, because we're on Radio Free Oz. That's David Osmond. I'm his co-host, Peter Bergman. And before we go any further, I want to let people know more in depth about what we're launching come October 2010. We have been around here for a while. We have built a boat and is about to arc out into the sea here. You know something? We've been on the air for half a year, Dave. Hmm. Well, look, we started on the 22nd of April, uh-huh. and it's all, you know, it's coming near the end. It's been 22nd of September has gone by. We've already done a spring and a, and a, and, and a summer, and we're into the fall. We're launching the Ozineers membership site as soon as possible in October, and it is a limited time offer. In one sense. Here's what it is. It's the membership, right? Members-only service for RadioFreeOz.com listeners. And here's what you receive if you join. You know, and you know, there's two ways to join. You can become a standard Ozineers, and that's four ninety nine a month. And this is buying the bandwidth and paying for all the work we're doing because this is becoming a full time gig for the Oz team. So we're yeah, you know, a we dollar got, a week, uh, plus yeah. a, plus some change. Yeah, a dollar a week. That's pretty Excuse good. Excuse me, you can't, you can't, quarter a day for get us. A, you can't you, even get a ooh. bad coffee for that. <laughs> so what you get first of all is you get exclusively the Road to Oz, which is the the videos of David and I doing the show. Hi, hi. Yeah, okay. kind of personal, and though you you alone can download those. Mm-hmm. Only the Osniers. Okay. There's the standard Osniers. We'll talk about the lifers in a second. <clears throat> then there's the high res audio, and what you see, this show is being uh, brought, you know, being recorded in 24 uh, bit 48k, which is high res, and we also are going to make high res and CD quality files available to you folks for free if you're an Osnier. Uh-huh. Yeah, That's in how fact, we can make high-res CDs. Yes, exactly. Okay, exactly. now I know. So you get that, too. Plus, and there's more. You also get to participate in the Ozineers blog, which is a full-on, you get to comment and, and suggest, and as we say, otherwise, rub cyber elbows with myself and David and the rest of the Oz team, who will be actively involved with the blog. That's an Ozineers-only blog. And Blue Skype. Now, Blue Skype is a show we're going to start soon in October in which you guys out there get first, we get first look at you. You go up, I ask a questions like, what do you think about so-and-so Afghanistan or whatever it is? You blog in what you think and then you leave your, your Skype number or your standard number, and then I call you. I'll let you know it's coming, and I call you, and I record the conversation, and it's part of the Blue Skype show, which we then run. Everybody gets to listen to it. You don't have to be eyes and ears to listen. But to be on it, you got to be in eyes and ears. Wow, it sounds like you got a network here, Pete. Yeah, we networking. Now, here's the thing. There's your standard eyes and ears for four ninety nine a month. If you want to be a lifetime member, a one-time $199 payment does it. But this is a limited offer. You're right. The first 250 lifers get wizard-level perks. Oh, boy. No, it's the, now, now this, so this is like level three. We play well, up to level three Yeah, here. and, and you're all level. winners, right? Okay. But only the first, just a certain number of them, a small mm-hmm. number of them, of the first so, so many lifers that come up are going to become wizard-level, and they get a swag bag. Okay. That includes a certificate of, uh, you know, that of wizard level ship yeah, signed sure. by the two of us with number. You are number. Now, uh, uh, we know who the number one uh, wizard is. It's John Goodman. He, when I talked with him recently, said, I want, how do I get one of them ears? How do I get them ears? Well, John, you're number one. <laughs> John, okay, and, okay number yeah. one. And there's a few other people already one. come up on the site saying, mm-hmm. you know, how do I get my ears? Okay. Okay, you get that. You also get the two-volume Best of Oz Spring and Summer CD set, which we, you and I, sign for them. And they also get uh, a page, a production page from 
the show, something that we Just, use on the show with mm-hmm. guaranteed fair trade coffee stains. Oh, okay. Okay? All Not right. so bad. That's a one-time, that's it. That's a one-time swag, wizard swag bag. And this costs them nothing more. This is just the first 250 people we're Not even 250. Become? Yeah, right. We're, we're 250. If we can, you know, it's a, it's limited. It may be less than that. we got to figure out okay. what we can handle. So you get in early, you become a wizard, you know, get it. in the wizard got level it. while you can. Plus, there are some other perks I can't mention right now, very good ones, coming from the other Oz team, but we've got to solidify them. Okay, so stay tuned. Go on up to the Oz site. As of Monday, there will be the Oz and Ears page and pages, and you can learn more about it. So get on and make it happen for all of us. You know, Peter, it's interesting because this reminds me of the calendar, uh, comedy calendar for the day, completely coincidentally. This is the anniversary of the day of tonight. The day of tonight. Tonight started in 1954. The Tonight, Tonight Show. The Tonight Show. With the great Johnny Carson. Yeah, and of course, uh, he wrote that that song, This Must Be the Start of Something Big. It seems appropriate, doesn't it? It certainly is, and we certainly hope it will be. Yeah, from Politico, oh, those Republicans, they just want to keep everybody sick. For some Republicans, it's one of the most potent attack lines this fall, prized for its simplicity. Want to kill the new health care law? Just starve it of cash and replace it with something else. Want to kill a lot of civilians? Just starve them of cash. (laughs) But there is nothing simple about it. Experts and even some Republicans say a GOP-controlled Congress next year would have to struggle to erase nearly $1 trillion in health reform spending over 10 years with the flick of a pen. Key parts of the bill, like new Medicaid entitlements, would require freestanding legislation, not merely routine changes during the appropriate process. The only way the GOP can really deal a mortal blow is by taking back the White House in 2013, these Republicans say. But even then, the clock would be running out with the law well into its fourth year of implementation and just a year away from when major benefits kick in. Uh Uh-huh. So despite the long odds, Republicans are zeroing in on a nibble-around-the-edges strategy, a long-term but so far loosely defined campaign to choke off funding piece by piece and weaken the law to the point that lawmakers feel they have no other choice but walking away from it. These guys are just so creative. Nibble and crunch and walk away and defund. They don't have a plan in their heads. Just hit the bar, drink, curse, and come back for another day of sucking up to the rich. It's hardly a quick fix, and it's in light. It's hardly a quick fix, and it's unlikely to fully satisfy conservative voters pushing for a speedy repeal of the president's overhaul. Still, it's a multi-pronged attack aimed and constantly putting President Barack Obama and the congressional Democrats in the uncomfortable position of defending a law that is yet to win broad public support. Because the broad public are just dumb. They aren't listening, they aren't paying attention, they aren't researching, and they better wake up or they're only going to get sicker. Without the president, we can't repeal it, said Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. He said that in a speech to a local chamber of commerce in Kentucky, but we can go after portions of it aggressively. Ooh, Senator Tom Coburn, he's a good right-winger, who signed a pledge last week on defundit.org to withhold cash for the law, said there is only a certain limited amount of things you can do. You can get a vote to repeal it, and the first thing Obama will do is veto it. That is an exercise in futility. No, Coburn, you are an exercise in futility. Well, Pete, since you're talking about food and KFC and chickens, uh, the chicken, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the egg guy uh, went to Congress and uh, testified, apologized. I Mr. Guess. Bad Egg. Mr. Bad Egg. Mr. Uh, his name is DeCoster. Yeah. Uh, the hearing, uh, there are a couple of wonderful little bits in the article in the Times. The hearing was briefly interrupted by two animal welfare advocates who unfurled an anti-egg banner and repeatedly chanted, All eggs kill! Police All officer. eggs <laughs> kill? kill. Police uh, <clears throat> officers escorted them from the room. An anti-egg campaign. All eggs killed. I, 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 this I is mean, good. There are kooks on the left. No there, more Chinese man. food until all Chinese have food. Yeah. 
<clears throat> this piece goes on. Democratic members of the panel denounced Senator Tom Coburn, a Republican from Oklahoma, oh, Kobe. who has objected to a Democratic plan to bring food safety legislation to a vote. This is a public health imperative, said Representative Edward Markey, Democrat Massachusetts. Don't we love Ed Markey? Yeah. They, we, they must release this bill so that we can protect millions of families. But... And I do mean, but Representative Michael C. Burgess, Republican of Texas, said that Mr. Coburn's objections had not prevented the bill from being considered by the Senate. Mr. Burgess sought to read, you can see real important business is going on here in the U.S. Senate. Mr. Burgess sought to read a statement from Mr. Coburn at the hearing, but Representative Bart Stupak, the chairman of the panel, cut off his microphone, which led to a sharp exchange between the lawmakers. These are people who are trying to do the nation's business. Yeah, but all <clears throat> eggs kill. I voted with you on the dang bill. I've worked with you on the dang bill, Mr. Burgess said. It is preposterous that the majority has conducted the hearing this way when he's not the problem. And then, referring to Mr. Coburn, Mr. Burgess added, he may become a problem if the majority leader brings it to the floor. A remark that elicited laughter from the room. But who's laughing here? And, you know, and whose eggs are they anyway? They're in everybody's eggs. I do want to turn you on to the Asia Times. It's a marvelous online newspaper, and it's not just about Asia. And one of the things they do is they publish American authors who, whose work in many ways is too long sometimes, too weighty, too complete for inclusion in um, standard newspapers. And I have quoted them time and time again. And here I go again. This, this is um, Tom Engelhardt, who's co-founder of the American Empire Project and runs the nation institute TomDispatch.com. Some of you are familiar with that. I'm breaking this into two parts uh, because it is lengthy. And uh, here we go with part one, the declining empire. Compare the following two assessments of the American future. In the latest NBC Wall Street Journal poll in which 61% of Americans interviewed considered things in the nation to be on the wrong track, 66% did not feel confident that the life for our children's generation will be better than it has been for us. That's pretty tragic. 7% were not sure and only 27% felt confident. But here was the polling question you're least likely to see discussed in your local newspaper or by Washington-based pundits. Do you think America is in a state of decline, or do you feel that this is not the case? 65% of respondents chose as their answer, in a state of decline. Meanwhile, Afghan War Commander General David Petraeus was interviewed last week by Martha Raddatz of ABC News, asked whether the American war in Afghanistan, almost a decade old, was finally on the right counterinsurgency track and could go on for another nine or ten years. Petraeus agreed that we were just at the beginning of the process, that the clock was only now ticking, and that we needed realistic expectations about what could happen and how fast. Progress in Afghanistan, he commented, was often so slow it would feel like watching grass grow or paint dry. A lot of people dying and being mutilated in the process of watching that grass grow or paint dry, and some of that grass is growing on those graves. Let's start with Afghanistan. Yes, we've been in or intimately involved with Afghanistan, not just for almost a decade, but for a significant chunk of the last 30 years. And for much of that time, we've poured our wealth into creating chaos and mayhem there in the name of freedom, liberation, reconstruction, and nation-building. We started in the distant days of the Ronald Reagan administration with the Central Intelligence Agency funneling vast sums of money and advanced weaponry into the anti-Soviet jihad. At that time, we happily supported outright terror tactics, including car bomb and even camel bomb attacks on the Soviets in Afghan cities and bomb attacks on movie theaters as well. These acts were committed by Islamic fundamentalists of the most extreme sort. And our officials, labeling them freedom fighters, couldn't say enough nice things about them. That was our expensive first decade in Afghanistan. In 1989, when the Russians withdrew in defeat, we departed in triumph. You know the next round well enough. We returned in 2001 armed and eager, carrying suitcases full of cash, and ready to fight many of the same fundamentalists we, or our allies, the Pakistanis, had set loose, funded, and armed in the previous two decades. 
If back in 1979 we had told a polling group of Americans that their country would soon embark on a never-ending war that would involve spending hundreds of billions of dollars, building staggering numbers of military bases, squandering startling sums, including at least $27 billion to train Afghan military and police forces, whose most striking trait is desertion, losing significant number of American lives and huge numbers of Afghan ones, and launching the first robot air war in history, and then ask them to pick the likely country. Not one in a million would have chosen Afghana where? And yet today, our leading general, perhaps, a quote, the greatest general of his generation, unquote, doesn't blink at the mention of another nine or ten years doing more of the same. Here's a simple reality. The U.S. is an imperial power in decline, and not just the sort of decline which is going to affect your children or grandchildren someday. We're talking about massive unemployment that's going nowhere and an economy which shows no sign of ever returning good jobs to this country on a significant scale, even if good times do come back sooner or later. We're talking about an aging, fraying infrastructure with its collapsing bridges and exploding gas pipelines that a little cosmetic surgery isn't going to help. And whatever the underlying historical trends, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and company accelerated this process immeasurably. You can thank their two mad wars, their all-planet-all-the-time global war on terror, their dumping of almost unlimited taxpayer dollars into the Pentagon, and war planning for the distant future, and their scheme to privatize the military and mind-meld it with a small group of crony capitalist privateers, not to speak of ramping up an already impressively over-muscled national security state into a national state of fear, while leaving the financial community to turn the country into a giant mortgage Ponzi scheme. Public opinion and elite opinion. The problem in all this isn't the American people. They already know the score. The problem is Afghan War Commander Petraeus. It's Secretary of Defense Robert Gates. It's Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. It's National Security Advisor James Jones. It's all those sober official types, military and civilian, who pass for realists and are now managing American global military presence. It's vast garrisons. It's wars and alarms. All of them are living in cloud cuckoo land. Ordinary Americans aren't. They know what's going down, and to judge by polls, they have a perfectly realistic assessment of what needs to be done. Jim Loeb of Interpress Service recently reported on the release of a major biennial survey, Constrained Internationalism Adapting to New Realities, by the Chicago Council of Global Affairs, CCGA. Here's the heart of it, as Loeb described it. The survey's main message, however, was that the U.S. public is looking increasingly toward reducing Washington's role in the world affairs, especially in conflicts that do not directly concern it. While two-thirds of citizens believe Washington should take an active part in world affairs, 49%, by far the highest percentage since the CCGA first started asking the question in the mid-70s, agreed with the proposition that the U.S. should mind its own business internationally and let other countries get along the best they can on their own. Moreover, 91% of respondents agreed that it was more important at this time for the U.S. to fix problems at home than to address challenges to the U.S. abroad, up from 82% who responded to that question in CCGA's last survey in 2008. That's a mighty jump. That striking 49% figure is no isolated outlier. As Charles Kupchan and Peter Turbowitz point out in an article in the journal International Security, a December 2009 Pew poll got the same 49% response to the same mind-its-own-business question. It was, they comment, the highest response ever recorded, far surpassing the 32% expressing that attitude in 1972 during the height of opposition to the Vietnam War. Along the same lines, the CCGA survey found significant majorities expressing an urge for their government to cooperate with China, but not actively work to limit the growth of its power and not to support Israel if it were to attack Iran. Similarly, they opted for a lighter military footprint and a lessening in the U.S. role as world policemen. 
When it comes to the Afghan war specifically, the latest polls and reporting indicate that skepticism about it continues to rise. All this adds up not to traditional isolationism, but to a realistic foreign policy, one appropriate to a nation not garrisoning the planet or dreaming of global hegemony. This may simply reflect a visceral sense of imperial decline under the pressure of two unpopular wars. Explain it as you will, it's exactly what Washington is incapable of facing. A CCGA survey of elite inside the Beltway opinion would undoubtedly find much of America's leadership class still trapped inside an older global paradigm and so willing to continue pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into Afghanistan and elsewhere rather than considering altering the American posture on the planet. What's that all about? What's it all about, Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Smith from Anytown, USA? Well... It's about this long. And about that wide. And it's about this country. About which we're singing about. Well, I know we've been following these uh, pastors who turn out to be pederasts for some time on this show because they seem to be cropping up. Pastor Pederast. The latest one from Atlanta. Two young men in Georgia said Tuesday last week that the pastor of a 33,000-person Baptist megachurch Bishop Eddie L. Long had repeatedly coerced them into having sex with him. Well, I don't know about that. This is a married guy. He's got all his family. And, you know, I'm not going to get into whatever they did have sex. But here's the story about Bishop Long. He is, of course, an outspoken critic of homosexuality, has been called by the Southern Poverty Law Center one of the most virulently homophobic black leaders in the religiously-based anti-gay movement. Wow, I mean, if you put capital letters on that, that'd be a hell of an acronym. He is the, but here's the best part, Pete. He's the author of a book titled, What a Man Wants, What a Woman Needs, The Secret to Successful Fulfilling Relationships. What a man wants, what a woman needs. Two extra guys in the bedroom. Hallelujah. From USA Today. The difference between the University of Texas at San Antonio's Applied Engineering and Technology Library, which I have not visited and probably won't, and other science-focused libraries is not that it's... I take it from the top. I don't have to say it. Here we go. From USA Today. The difference between the University of Texas at San Antonio's Applied Engineering and Technology Library and other science-focused libraries is not that its on-site collection is also available electronically. It is that its on-site collection is only available electronically. The idea of a library with no bound books has been a recurring theme in conversations about the future of academe for a long time, and it has become common practice for academic libraries to store rarely used volumes in off-campus facilities. But there are few, if any, examples of libraries that actually have zero bound books in them. San Antonio says it now has the first actual bookless library. Students who stretch out in the library's ample study spaces, which dominate the floor plan of the new building, and log on to its resource network using their laptops or the library's 10 public computers, will be able to access 425,000 ebooks and 18,000 electronic journal articles. Librarians will have offices there and will be available for consultation. Students used to get their engineering technology books from a collection at the campus's main library. That collection is still there, and books from it are available upon request. But at the new library dedicated to that specialty, the only dead trees are in the beams and furniture. As a shared space for discovery, socializing, and studying, the library is still very much relevant and, and in demand, says Christine Maloney, Dean of Libraries at San Antonio. That's why the university invested $82.5 million in a new library building instead of just putting librarians and offices around campus, Maloney says. You study and work in the library. That's how libraries have always been. When people come to the library with books, they're not necessarily using the books. They're also there for the services, to consult get instruction, find content, and use the content. I'm going to the library. Well, Pete, I'm going to do uh, my blog piece today, my poem, my news poem today, and if people want to read it after I read it, they got to go up to the RadioFreeOz.com website and take a look at Osman's blog. Do that out there. Do that. I know blogs aren't usually poems, but then news isn't often broadcast in the form of poems either. But that's what I'm going to do here. And uh, 
since this comes right off of the op-ed page, I want you to hear it now. It's called Banana Republicans. Paul Krugman says, op-ed, The Times, today, America's future is banana republic. No, not the store. A nation run by colonels like Ollie North and the oncoming onslaughter of Stallone thug wannabes so secretly trained to kill one at a time in this particularly bullshit war. A compassionless state where Wall Streeters' houses are visible from outer space. Slavery returns big time to fatten, kill, pick, clean, and I mean really clean in those 17 bathrooms, while farm rats bite the desperate hens in the face. Rats and hens left alone with Darwin to max out some bottom line, while mercenary families with choppers and whackers, guns and gasoline make sure they can drive a truck any damn place on God's earth before barbecuing for eternity in heaven where it's clean. From USA Today, well, you can't smoke it yet, but you can live in it. In Asheville, North Carolina, home built with thick hemp walls was completed this summer and two more are in the works. Dozens of hemp houses have been built in Europe in the past two decades, but they're new to the United States, says David Madeira, co-founder of Hemp Technologies, a company that supplied the mixture of ground-up hemp stalks, lime, and water. That's pretty simple. Ground-up hemp stalks, lime, and water. It's a hemp concrete. The industrial hemp is imported because it cannot be grown legally in this country. It comes from the same plant as marijuana. If you are wondering why we're running such a crazy election with so many wingnuts running around, think about the fact that you can't grow hemp in this country country because it's also marijuana. We are so fuck-cocked. There is a growing interest in less toxic building materials, says Peter Ashley, director of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's Office of Healthy Homes and Lead Hazard Control. The potential health benefits are significant, he says, citing a recent study of a Seattle public housing complex that saw residents' health improve after their homes got a green makeover. And hemp as a building material is part of that green makeover. Asheville's first hemp house. (laughs) We're trying to develop a system that's more health-based. Brenner says, He's been searching for non-toxic materials because he wants to build a home for his nine-year-old daughter, Bailey, who has a rare genetic disorder that makes her extremely sensitive to chemicals. We have to keep her away from anything synthetic, he says, or she'll have seizures. He says a hemp home can be affordable, even though importing hemp makes it more expensive than other building materials because skilled labor is unnecessary and hemp is so strong that less lumber is needed. So if we could grow it here, the hemp houses would be even cheaper. The hemp mixture, typically four parts ground-up hemp to one part lime and one part water, is placed inside a two-foot by four-foot wall form. Once it sets, the forms are removed. Although it hardens to a concrete-like form, wood framing is used for structural support. This is like having a living, breathing wall, Madeira says. Hemp absorbs carbon dioxide and puts nitrogen into the soil, so it's good for the environment, he says. Alex Wilson, executive editor of Environmental Building News, says hemp can be grown with minimal use of chemicals and water. He says it has a mid-level insulating value, R2 per inch, but is usually installed in a thick enough wall system to make it appropriate for all but the most severe climates. Asheville's second hemp home will be finished in about six weeks, says builder Clark Snell of the Nauhaus Institute, a nonprofit group of designers, engineers, developers, and others interested in sustainable urban living. Snell says the home, which has 16-inch thick walls, is airtight and, um, and energy efficient. He expects it to meet rigorous passive house institute standards, which calls for homes to use up to 90% less energy than regular ones. 90% less energy. Whoa! On the coldest day in winter, the body heat of 10 people should heat the home, he says. It sounds like fun. We're basically building a European home. The owners of the first hemp home say it cost $133 a square foot to build, not including land and excavation. That's pretty remarkable for a custom home in Asheville, which is a pricey area, says Karen Corp, a writer who moved into the house in July. Welcome to my hemp house, baby. It's smoking. 
How about that Christine O'Donnell? She has leapt out of a well-deserved obscurity and joined Sarah Palin, Sharon Angle, and Michelle Bachman atop the Mount Rushmore of ultra-right-wing ladies. You might ask why Phyllis Schlafly, the demagogue of the Eagle Foundation, isn't up there with them. After all, Texas replaced Thomas Jefferson with Phyllis in their school history curriculum, and that ought to get her already chiseled face chiseled up there with the other femme fatales of American fascism. But Phyllis is too old school and just doesn't have the requisite cue. Not so our gal Christine. She has vaulted up the steps of the Temple of Christian Politics, I spell Christian with a small c because there's not a drop of Christ in it, proudly waving all the buzzword banners of her reactionary cult. To Christine, homosexuality is an identity disorder. Masturbation is adultery. AIDS victims have only themselves to blame. Abortion is a crime, even in cases of rape and incest. And the U.S. is already mired in socialism. When she ran for the Senate in 2006, she heard, quote, the audible voice of God, who probably told her she was going to take a shellacking, but promised she would be carried to victory in 2010 by all the Delaware nutcases who feared his wrath should they fail to elect his anointed. Divine intervention is one explanation for Christine's remarkable victory. But there is another, more ominous scenario. When Chris was dating witches back in high school and doing the nasty on bloodstained satanic altars, did she make a pact with the darkest pack of them all? Is Lucifer managing her run for the roses? Is that why Karl Rove is so all over her? Does a whiff from O'Donnell's sulfurous campaign remind Carl of his old mentor, whose black art served him so well in the White House? Is the Rovester jealous now that the Flymaster has chosen Christine's dung pile of smears and lies to hatch his eggs? Stay tuned. The soap opera has just begun. Well, Dave, the Firesign Theater is going back on the road with a new show. A brand new show, Pete. And so if uh, people saw our last show, which was kind of comprised of Don't Crush That Dwarf and Waiting for the Electrician, yeah. plus Nick Danger, of course. And anything, and some anything you want to. Right. This time, we've gone back to an album that we very seldom ever projected on stage. I think we're all bozos on this bus. And it works. It's a real nice kind of combo melange. And, and the second act. It's got some anything, some new anything you want to. It's got new danger and all sorts of contemporary stuff that all of us have been writing in the interim. And remember, remember that Ralph Spoilsport's going to be with us in this show like he always is. And we'll drive down the Antelope Freeway and see what we can find there. Yeah, well, we'll take the stops on the freeway at the Marin Center Showcase Theater in San Rafael on October 8th. The next day to the Golden State Theater, where we started this whole show thing a year and a half ago in Monterey. So the 8th at the Marin Center Showcase Theater in San Rafael, and the 9th at the beautiful Golden State Theater in Monterey. More information at firesigntheater.com. Squeeze the wheeze. It doesn't hurt. Honk, honk. This is part two of the saga of Imperial Decline by Tom Engelhart, who's co-founder of the American Empire Project, and he runs the nation's institutes, TomDispatch.com. It's a good thinker. All right, Imperial Denial Won't Stop Decline. Despite much planning during and after World War II for a future role as the planet's preeminent power, Washington used to act as if its responsibilities as the leader of the free world had been thrust on it. That, of course, was before the Soviet Union collapsed. After 1991, it became commonplace for pundits and officials alike to refer to the U.S. as the only sheriff in town, the global policeman, or the planet's sole superpower. We were so, uh, just so aggressive, that whole sheriff thing. Yeah, we rule the world. We got the guns. St stand in line. Use our bucks. Give us your oil. Whatever the American people might have thought a post-Cold War peace dividend would mean, elites in Washington already knew and acted accordingly. As in any casino when you're on a roll, they doubled down their bets, investing the fruits of victory in more of the same, especially in the garrisoning and control of the oil-rich Persian Gulf region. And when the good fortune only seemed to continue and the sole enemies left in military terms proved to be a few regional rogue states of no great importance and small non-state groups, it went to their heads in a big way. In the wake of 9-11, 
that 21st century Pearl Harbor, unquote, the new crew in Washington and the pundits and think tankers surrounding them saw a planet ripe for the taking. Having already fallen in love with the U.S. military, they made the mistake of believing that military power and global power were the same thing and that the U.S. had all it needed of both. They were convinced that a Pax Americana in the greater Middle East was within their grasp if only they acted boldly. And they didn't doubt for a moment that they could roll back Russia. They were, after all, former Cold Warriors and put China in its place at the same time. Their language was memorable. They spoke of cakewalks and a military light and shock and awe aerial blitzes and missions accomplished. When they joked around, a typical line went, Everyone wants to go to Baghdad. Real men want to go to Tehran. Frightening, huh? And they meant it. They were ready to walk the walk, or so they thought. That was the remarkably brief period when the idea of empire or empire light was proudly embraced and friendly pundits started comparing the United States to the Roman or British empires. It's hard to believe how recently that was and how relatively silent the present crew in Washington has fallen when it comes to the glories of American power. Now, they just hope to get by, in itself a sign of decline. That's why we've entered a period when, except for the inanely repetitious overblown references to the threats of Al-Qaeda, no one in Washington cares to offer Americans an explanation, any explanation, of why we're fighting globally. They prefer to manage the pain while holding the line. They prefer to leak the news, for example, that in Afghanistan no policy changes are in the offing anytime soon. As the Washington Post reported recently, the White House calculus is that the strategy retains enough public and political support to weather any near-term objections. My, 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 huge issues being treated on a day-by-day basis. No vision, no plan, just the opposite of Obama and the stimulus. He's a domestic thinker. He doesn't have a scintilla of Langley or West Point in him. He's out of his class, a class I would not like to graduate with. Officials do not expect real pressure for progress and a more precise definition of goals to build until next year says the Post, and next year, and next year, and next year. It's not that they don't see decline at all, but that they'd prefer to think of it as a mild, decades-long process, the sort of thing that might lead to a diminution of American power by 2025. At the edges, however, you can feel other assessments creeping up. In, for instance, former Condoleezza Rice National Security Consul Deputy Robert Blackwell's recent call for the U.S. to pull back its troops to northern Afghanistan, ceding the Pashtun south to the Taliban. Sooner or later, and I doubt it'll take as long as many imagine, you'll hear far more voices, ever closer to the heartland of of American power, rising in anxiety or even fear. Don't think nine or ten years either. This won't be a matter of choice. Our leadership may be delusional, but there will be nothing more to double down with. And so America's global military presence will begin to crumble. And whether they want it or not, whether there's even an anti-war movement or not, these troops will start coming home. Not to a happy nation or to an upbeat situation, but home in any case. But cheer up. The news isn't all that bad, truly. We've just gotten way too used to the idea that the United States must be the planet's preeminent nation, the global hegemon, the sole superpower, numero uno. We've convinced ourselves that neither we nor the world can exist without our special management. Trust me, it's going to feel better not to be engaged in an arms race of one or playing the role of the globe's major arms dealer. It's going to feel better to focus on American problems. Maybe experiment a little at home and offer the world some real models for a difficult future instead of talking incessantly about what a model we are while we bomb and torture and assassinate around the world with impunity. So take some pleasure in this. Our troops are coming home, and we're going to see it happen. And in the not-so-distant future, it won't be our job to police the world or be the global sheriff. And won't that be a relief? We can form 
actual coalitions of equals to do things worth doing globally and never have to organize another coalition of the billing, twisting arms and bribing others to do our military bidding. Since by the time we get anywhere near such a world, our leaders will have run this country into the ground, it's hard to offer the traditional three cheers for such a future. But how about at least one and a half perspective cheers for the possible return of perspective to our American world, for a significant lessening, even if not the decisive ending, of an American imperial role and of the massive military footprint that goes with it? It's going to happen. Put your money on it. Tom Englehart's latest book, well worth reading, The American Way of War, How Bush's Wars Became Obama's. Hey, huh? aren't you Mr. and Mrs. John like Smith from any town, USA? Hello. Hi, Joe, boy, and this here's Ed. <laughs> hey, uh, I'm not really Mr. and Mrs. John Smith. <laughs> well, that's okay. I'm not Joe. And yeah? he's not Ed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, fella, how about bending a couple in the doodah room? If you catch my meaning, if you get my drift. <laughs> Thanks, fellas, but I'm kind of tired. Hey, desk clerk, can I have my key, please? Sure. What about G7? Hit it, Jimmy. Well, you know, recently we did a whole thing on Colonel Saunders and the fact that nobody knows who, who he is. And I told the story of meeting him at the other end of his cane when I was chasing a girlfriend's hat at LAX, <laughs> the real guy. Well, now KFC wants folks to watch its backside, David. This is out of USA I've been, Today. I've been watching the chicken's backside for years. Go ahead. Or more precisely, the backsides of female college students. It's recruiting to promote its new bunless double-down sandwiches. Oh, no. Come on. Here it comes. You're kidding me. Women on college campuses are being paid $500 each to hand out coupons while wearing fitted sweatpants with double-down in large letters across their rear ends. May I go? I, I know, I know. Yeah, the promo. I can't stop you. Go. The promo comes as KFC is in the doldrums domestically. I think mentally also. <laughs> the world's largest chicken chain's U.S. same store sales fell seven percent in the second quarter. Nearly all of its growth now is in international expansion, i.e., China and India. Yeah. Last week, the chain confessed, that's like what you do to a crime, probably, <laughs> that more than 6 in 10 Americans ages 18 to 25, the chain's key demographic, couldn't identify who Colonel Saunders was in the KFC logo. That's because they've turned it into a total, like, non-person logo. It could be yeah, anybody. Yeah. We turned him into Chairman Mao, and you can't tell the difference. <laughs> now, it's turning to cute women parading around campuses with double down emblazoned across their fannies. Okay, that's that's what they're doing thus far. Well, in our day in college, those same cute girls used to hand out packs of free cigarettes. But they didn't have anything on their backs. No, they like, except didn't. Jeans or, they wouldn't or, have done that. The nation's largest women's group doesn't like it one bit. It's <laughs> so obnoxious to once again be using women's bodies to sell fundamentally unhealthy products, says Terry O'Neill, president of the National Organization for Women. What's more, she says, KFC has forgotten something in important. Women make more than half the decisions about what to eat for dinner, right? Mm -hmm. Mm. So, but KFC marketing chief John Sawinski says it's an effective way to catch the attention of young men, KFC's key customers and the biggest fans of Double Down. Ah, but, to but the rest, yeah. brand guru Jonathan Salem Baskin whoever that may be. Uh, one of those says, people they talk There's to. nothing inherently wrong with using women to attract guys, but in this case, it's irrelevant to the product. KFC would be KFC would do better, he says, to follow the McDonald's model. Clean up your stores, fix the menu, and please people with the food you make. Yeah, you think yeah, that might well, make a difference? I don't think I think I, I I think so long as they keep guys looking at girls' butts and fixing the words double down. Double, Double down, down on me, baby. Double down on, I mean, come on. Sure, I yeah, by all means, KFC. Keep it dirty. Keep those chickens in prison. But, but Double down on but, them buns. Mm -hmm. Yum. This from Paris's Agent France Press uh, through the Daily Beast. Israel today raised the possibility of a compromise on settlement construction just ahead of the scheduled ending of curbs that threatened to derail U.S.-backed Middle East peace talks. Oh, those settlements, they are such a provocation. 
Two days before the conclusion of the 10-month partial moratorium on settlement construction in the occupied West Bank, the government indicated it was willing to cut a deal acceptable to the United States and the Palestinians who both want an extension of the restrictions. Israel is prepared to reach a compromise acceptable to all parties, a senior government official said when asked about U.S. President Barack Obama's call for the moratorium to be extended. I wonder why they did this. But he also stressed that there cannot be zero construction in West Bank settlements. I don't know. Why are they compromising? Something's happening. Somebody has some serious leverage. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was making intensive efforts to reach such a compromise before the expiration of the moratorium on September 26, added the official. Israel was previously adamant that the restrictions would not be renewed, even though Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas had threatened to walk out of the peace talks over the issue. Obama on Thursday firmly restated his conviction the moratorium should be extended. Well, the two of them together may have convinced the Israelis, but there's something else going on. Abbas welcomed Obama's remarks, especially his call for a halt of the settlement activities and for the creation of a Palestinian state. However, the Palestinian leader reiterated his threat to quit the talks if new construction curbs are not imposed. At the end of the freeze period on the 26th of the month, if the response about the freeze of settlement is not positive, we will halt negotiations, he said in New York at a meeting with members of the Palestinian community. In recent days, Netanyahu has discussed the issue with U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and other leaders, the Israeli official said. Well, yeah, I think that Hillary probably reamed him a new air hole, and Angela Merkel's not real happy about them buildings either, so maybe the pressure is just too much for old Nettie. The Obama administration has already played a key role in getting the two sides back to the negotiating table. In a bid to resolve the row, U.S. officials have suggested a three-month extension to the moratorium, during which time the two sides could agree on borders, which would neutralize the settlement's dispute, a senior Palestinian official said. The international community considers Israeli settlements in the West Bank, including annexed East Jerusalem, to be illegal. Now, you might not read a sentence like that in the New York Times, but you're going to read in the French press. Some 500,000 Israelis live in more than 120 Jewish settlements across the West Bank and East Jerusalem, territories expected to form the bulk of a future Palestinian state. Boy, talk about oil and water. <laughs> well, there's no oil there. And, uh, you know, the war in Lebanon was about cutting off the, the Jordan water. So you got no oil, you got no water, you got what? Maybe a three-month compromise coming? It's such an insoluble situation. I mean, it, 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 even, makes, it even makes the jihad seem simple. The end of another lovely show with you, Dave. Uh, but it wouldn't be a show without the tang, the touch of tang. The touch of tang from Han Yu. Uh, this we're is, still in autumn, right? We're autumn still series. in his set of, um, of autumn poems. This okay. is number five uh-huh. uh, today. Tearing inside, there gnaws a baseless grief. A needless vigilance envelops me fearfully. Dews sparkle the tops of autumn trees. Insects mourn the cold night's eternity. Drawing inward, I adopt a new timidity. Plotting my life, lament the former rage. Return to the simple and know the tranquil road. To draw up antiquity takes a long rope. A shallow fame still holds disgrace, but basic joys bring real content. If remorse and blame were left behind, then here would be my hidden retreat. Uh, can't hide from the tang. This is no retreat. We're right up front here on Radio Free Oz, brought to you by the Radio Free Oz team. I'm Peter Bergman, your host, my co-host, David Osmond. We're recorded here in beautiful Blue U Studios by our genius audio mentor, Dave Maloney. The new member of the Oz team is uh, Kelly Brewer, who is doing some marketing and social media for us. Phil Fountain is making everything look beautiful. He's the head of the Oz Design Group. Uh, Scott Wilde is build, builds our site. He's Mr. WordPress. And Tom Gedwillow, he is our... Uh, uh, 
webmaster and a master indeed. Chaz Glass keeps all of the numbers cooking, and Bill McIntyre produces the whole schlamazel. Or is it a schmageggy? I don't know, Jeez. but it sure is a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs>